The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. heroes to look up to. Those who represent the best parts of ourselves, achieving things we dream about and holding the morals to which we aspire. But who creates these heroes? Is it someone who would want to lift up others? Or someone who wants to show them why they should stay in their place? My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic and Big Egg, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. Tonight's symposium covers Supergirl, a 1984 superhero adventure based on the DC Comics character, directed by Juno Schwark and starring Helen Slater, Faye Dunaway, Peter Cook and Peter O'Toole. My guest is writer Paul Morris, and you join us in a side room at a Scooby-Doo convention. Hi, Paul. Hello, Jeremy. So, what can you tell me about 19th century combustion engines? (laughs) Well, I mean... uh... My favourite is um, Stevenson and Rocket, and I, I know it's not the first, and I know it's not the best, but I mean, really, it's, if you're going old school, you can't beat it. No, you certainly can't. But um, on, on a very different matter uh, to the one we were discussing just before this recording, what can you tell me about uh, female superheroes? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean... Um... I'm not a comic expert, uh, but I can tell you that in films, they've had a pretty um, <laughs> pretty difficult run. A lot of uh, false starts and scepticism from certain quarters, producers, sometimes even audiences. And uh, it's fair to say they haven't always been done justice. I wouldn't like to say what the first ever female comic book superhero to make it to the screen was. Well, I believe it's Supergirl. Right. That would have been my first guess. Because there would have been very few male superheroes making it to the big screen, if we're not including Sassay Matinees, even by, even by the early 80s. Well, the first Marvel Comics adaptation to uh, reach cinema screens, as well you know, of course, was Howard the Duck uh, in, <laughs> 1980, in 1986. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, obvious place to start. Don't know well, why they didn't choose that again when they created the MCU. Well, Howard the Duck has appeared in the MCU um, mm. in very minor supporting roles in a couple of uh, so films. far. Yeah, he's been in, uh, I think, Guardians of the Galaxy two and the Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas Special, and has a walk on in Avengers Endgame, and um, he's voiced by Seth Green. Yes, uh, but I'm just looking through the uh, the list of major superhero productions and we've got uh, Catwoman uh, Electra yeah um, Birds of Prey um, we do have a we do have some TV series of course we have the Wonder Woman TV series from the 70s um, Batwoman I mean 
maybe you're more of a comic expert than me, but regarding the comics in general, rather than just the adaptations, I did have a feeling that perhaps the female characters are often either sidekicks or female versions of an already established male character, which doesn't really set them up on an even playing field. No, it doesn't. Um, I mean, the the biggest successes we've had in the last few years have been Captain Marvel, who is a successor to a male version of the character. Yep. And uh, Wonder Woman. Yes, she would pretty much be the only exception, really, wouldn't she? Yes. The uh, biggest character that's invented as and could only really be female. Yes. Which is quite an important point. <laughs> um, but... Um, with a very variable history in on the screen. I mean, there was a, a failed TV movie in the early 70s that was then retooled the following year with Linda Carter, and that then led to the TV series. We've had the two films more recently, one of which was a critical and commercial success. The sequel was a critical and commercial disaster. Uh, have you seen Wonder Woman 1984? I have. Uh, I thought... Um, I thought... Oh... Somebody likes the 80s Superman films, I thought. Superman? Sh- shrewdly. Superman, yes, that's, uh, that's what Tom Baker would say if he were <laughs> Cyberman. <laughs> uh, it seemed, yes. I probably didn't dislike it as much as most people and you, um, because I thought it was quite an affectionate homage to films that I was quite fond of in my childhood. Well, I don't reg- mind reg- that. I mean, I don't mind uh, affectionate homages to things. I mean, I'm currently re-watching Stranger Things and finding it very enjoyable. And that's uh, lifted wholesale from Stephen King and 80s sci-fi things and bits and bobs re-stitched together. But um, it also has um, a degree of respect for its audience and a plot that (laughs) makes sense and characters who don't do reprehensible shit and expect not to get called on it. Yes, as I said, there are some internal problems with the uh, with the details of the plot and treatment. Mm. But it wasn't a bad idea at the initial stages, no, I'm sure. No, no, no. As they have the whole of the 20th century to play with, why not do an 80s set Wonder Woman story? What, you know, you can jump around and do all kinds of settings and decades. Um, so there was no reason why that wouldn't work. But it was everything else that seemed to be a problem. But uh, there is, of course, the Arrowverse of the the various linked uh, DC comic book series that have been running on uh, American television for the last decade or so. That's now winding up. The ninth and final season of The Flash is currently concluding. And one of these was a TV version of Supergirl Mm -hmm. um, with uh, Melissa Benoist playing the lead role. Um, it's been very successful, very popular. Uh, I've not seen a single episode because it's locked away on Sky. Um, but there was, of course, the 1984 Supergirl movie. Hmm. Uh, it hailed from the producers of the first three Superman films, the Salkines. Um, they wanted to expand the scope of their super characters... Uh, and cash in, and so they decided it would be a good idea to produce a superhero movie that uh, young girls can watch. That was their avowed aim. Yeah. To broaden um, or or possibly narrow the audience, depending on which way you look at it. Yes, become more selective, I think. Um, 
so with the the cachet that the Superman movies had had, they managed to gather together an extraordinary cast. I mean, it has one uh, an amazing cast for a film of the time. I don't want to be a cynic, but are you sure it was entirely the cachet that drew the cast and not the uh, not not, not the not cash? The... Very good. Sorry. Very good. Very good. Um, well, in some cases, uh, I can imagine that. Uh, the likes of Peter Cook would have been quite keen just to take a large cut of money. But um, Peter O'Toole seems to have been very enthusiastic. I mean, he'd auditioned for Tron a couple of years earlier. Right. Um, the David insist- Warner role? No. Um, I don't know. I think he might have been trying for the lead because um, hmm. he was uh, he was vocal in the uh, the meeting about how he'd be able to do his own stunts and demonstrated by leaping around the room. <laughs> A delightful image. Yes, I mean he would have. I, he, I can imagine he would have been excellent in the David Warner role. But um, we had David Warner, who was perfect. Yes, David Warner, as celebrated by the Baftas, sharing a screen with yes. Leslie Phillips. <laughs> but, yes, uh, the good of them but... to use a, a screen grab from YouTube for that uh, tribute. Oh, amazing! Yeah. Um, but Bird and Cribbin should be lucky they, <laughs> they ignored him. Well, God yeah, I mean, I, I would have found it odd if Cribbins had been included in the film rather than television sector, because although he did have that long film career, he is better known for his television work. I think BAFTA's response to the complaints was a bit snooty and high-handed, but I don't think the complaints themselves were particularly justified in the first place. We'll see. I mean, we could have managed without the pointless musical numbers as well. And that woman off Big Brother. Good grief. I think that those segments were there because the ceremony was being shown on American television and they had to have something on the BBC while they were having ad breaks. Right. Well, I would have preferred the test card, but each to their own. So had you seen Supergirl the movie before? I hadn't. Um, back in this, this is my era. I used to go and see all the blockbusters with my dad. We never went to see proper films. We just went to see one or two blockbusters every summer. And I think we'd seen, well, hang on, I'm probably a bit young for Superman the movie on the big screen, but I think I saw Superman 2 and definitely Superman 3, which of course was my favourite, just like Return of the Jedi was my favourite. Um, just depends what age they get you at, doesn't it? Yeah. But I don't remember ever, I, I, I wouldn't like to say whether I could remember Supergirl being out there in the ether, but I don't certainly don't remember ever being tempted to go and see it. And this is not, before you ask because I was a boy and I didn't like silly girls stuff. It wouldn't have been that. I just think you sort of knew in the air that this was not this was one to miss, one to pass, if you got the opportunity to not see it. Well, it uh, did receive the Royal Film premiere mm-hmm. uh, when it was released in uh, July 1984. Um, but, uh, yes, it had a, a very troubled... Uh, late period. Um, It was decided to release two completely different versions of the film in the US and the uh, rest of the world. Um, The American version is missing 20 minutes. Right. Compared to the the version that you and I watched. So it's 1 hour 40. 1 hour 45, yeah. Right, yeah. Oh, yes. And ours was 2 hours 5, but with PAL speed up from the the cheap DVD (laughs) that I'm sure you used as well. Um, It's a lean (laughs) 2 hours. Uh, there were several directors who were uh, asked to be involved. Richard Lester, who'd done the last two Superman films. Um, Robert Wise, 
the director of The Sound of Music and uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture, who presumably pulled a horrible face at them before leaving. And they wound up with uh, Jeannot Schwark, the French filmmaker, behind um, Jaws 2 and Somewhere in Time, which had starred Christopher Reeve. And Reeve, ah. Reeve had vouched for Schwark's ability. But then refused to go anywhere near this. The, the intention was that Reeve would have an extended cameo. He would uh, appear early on greeting Kara uh, as she arrives on Earth for the first time and later participate in the final battle. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it turned out that uh, that wasn't going to happen after all. No, it's. I don't know in how many stages, how many cuts they pared down his role until we finally get a voiceover as a car's driving off to explain where he is. Oh, and yes. a poster. Hmm. Yes, he's he he is reduced to a line of someone else's dialogue and a picture on a wall. Jaws two, eh? Well, we let's hope. Have you done Jaws two yet? Did Jaws four? Ah, go straight for the. The thing is, <laughs> the heavy hitters. Jaws two. I, there was a very interesting thing. There was a um, some sort of pa- panel at a convention I saw talking about, and people were talking about the most damaging film ever released, and people were saying things like "Old oh, Birth of a Nation" or. Triumph of the Will, you know, obviously very offensive films. But someone said, well, yes, okay. But in terms of to the film industry, Jaws 2. Because it proved that you could do the same thing again at cheaper and poorer quality and people will still pay to see it. Jaws 2 is fine. Yeah. I quite like it. It's really fine. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the original, personally. I think it gets a bit boring once they go out to sea. I think all the stuff on the land is is more exciting. Um, But but the problem not... is, Jaws 2, directorially, is to Steven Spielberg, as Supergirl is to Richard Lester. And yeah. Richard Lester is already not Richard Donner. So you're getting, a, without you know, getting ahead too far ahead into my opinions, you're getting a rather pale photocopy of uh, well, this the original. This isn't even the first Jeannot Schwark film that I've covered on this podcast. Because many years ago, I covered his next film, Santa Claus the Movie. Right. Uh, which stars the other half of the double act, Dudley Moore. <laughs> and on the uh, the DVD commentary, which I listened to earlier today, um, uh, Schwark mentions that, oh yes, that he worked with both Peter Cook and Dudley Moore because they were a very famous double act in England. And the American interviewer goes, oh yes, from Bedazzled. Yes, that's the one thing that Americans have heard of them from. Hmm. Because uh, they're not going to start talking about Derek and Clive on a water bottle's DVD. <laughs> oh, that'd be good. You end up with an 18 certificate Supergirl. Yeah, but not for the reason people the... would expect. <laughs> right, thank you for the context on the director, I was wondering. Um, so we start with this very, uh, I think, exciting title sequence. And all done practically, of these metal uh, letters coming towards the camera and... Very exciting music, and it starts really promisingly, I think. I think the the score is Jerry Goldsmith, I think. Right, that uh, would explain it, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's a really great score. Um, I, I'd say it's, it certainly stands up next to John Williams' original. Yeah, I think and so. I mean, the, the theme is very sort of heroic and uh, exciting-sounding, and it sounds like a sort of a super Superman-type score, but different I've, enough not to be... I've, I've got it in my head, the you know super main Supergirl. What do you call it? Can't remember. It was a small piece of music, I suppose. So yeah, 
<laughs> yes. could, have got, could have got more mileage out of that. Yeah, but with, with, with laser noises over it as well. <laughs> Uh, because the film starts in space. There was an original plan that the film would start with the destruction of Krypton again. Yeah. But they decided not to simply retread old ground, as both Superman and Superman 2 start with the destruction of Krypton. <laughs> Superman 2 starts with a very long pre preamble of previously on this film. Oh, God, doesn't it just? Yeah. I should point out, I did rewatch Superman 1 and 2 as preparation for this. I'm a professional. I, more well, because I wanted to put it in context. I wanted to think, I assume this isn't going to be very good, but I want to know quite where on the scale of, you know, one to Superman the movie, it, it falls. So um, It had been expected that Superman 3, which was released uh, in the summer of 1983, was going to be a mega hit because that teamed Superman with Richard Pryor. And it wasn't a mega hit. And it didn't do very well at all, and critics actively despised it. Which is a shame, because Superman 3 is really pretty good fun. I'm glad you agree. I was discussing this with a friend of mine, and um, who I agree with on most things, and he did, I'm afraid, draw the line there with Superman 3. Didn't get round to it this time, but I have fond memories of it. It's, it's very enjoyable, I think. Yes, it did poorly, and Supergirl was being filmed at the same time, so this was the ah. very much the Tom Cruise in the mummy of the planned super family. <laughs> Who's next, Super Dog? Or... Uh, what, Crypto the Super Dog? <laughs> He's had his own film. But regarding the opening scene, I, as not a comic expert, and maybe this is not a drawback, I don't know if it's authentic, I really had no idea where we were. They mentioned Argo City, but I assumed it was on Crypton. So I thought this was some weird flashback to before it exploded. Are you coming on to this or not? Shall I carry on? But then they start talking about when my cousin left for Earth. And I thought, well, hang on. How big a gap was there between when the planet exploded and when he left? Which I only watched it the other week. So, <laughs> But I was a bit confused well, by is, even at the time. So this is, um, this is explained by Argo City being in inner space. Yes, is it? Oh, you mean it's supposed to be? Yes, like that. it's yeah. uh, it's somewhere else. Uh, apparently, Schwark thought of it as being like a moon that they were living on, but it's yeah, clearly some sort of other realm of uh, right. reality or something. I don't know what it is in the comics. I just googled it, and in the Supergirl TV series, apparently it's some sort of asteroid, like an actual chunk of Krypton that managed to survive. Oh, fair so, enough. I mean, it could just be like a co- just like a colony. I do love the way Peter Hall. Gives his, puts his all into that explanation, the difference in inner space and outer space, and goodness knows what else he then goes on to, what other techno babble he goes on to spout. I, I was saying this only the other day about British actors that they they take the work seriously, but they don't take themselves seriously. So you will get Peter O'Toole being in a film like this and treating this gibberish <laughs> like it's Ibsen or. Or Bernard Shaw, he you know he will deliver it as best he can. Peter Cushing is the perfect example of that because he treats every you know B grade Hammer horror film, and a lot of them were B grade, as though it's you know uh, Theatre Six Two Five or the Wednesday Play. <laughs> and it's uh, uh, there's a difference I think between that kind of taking it seriously enough. And Faye Dunaway, who is <laughs> not bad, but 
but not right. Well, we'll come on to that. I was very pleased to see a British, somebody actually with a British accent at last, because, of course, the first two... Well, oh, no, sorry, I was forgetting Terence Stamp. But, I mean, the first one filmed here, not a British voice to be heard, and we and all the Kryptonians are American for absolutely lots of the no Kryptoni- reason. Lots of the Kryptonian elders are British. There's Harry, Andrew- <laughs> Harry Andrews, William Russell. Yeah, Ian Chesterton. Careful, Barbara. Um, that's, uh, that's why they tear up a cardigan as they're trying to escape from the uh, dist- destruction of Krypton. Um... <laughs> But yes, we have. Um, uh, was it, it's not Simon Oates. Who am I thinking of? Simon Ward, apparently. Simon Ward as Marlon Brando's brother. <laughs> um, I suppose so. Married to Mia Farrow, and um, the, the whole city is uh, created by Zoltar, played by Peter O'Toole, as his most Peter O'Toole, and the city is powered by the uh, mysterious power source, the Omega Hedron. Yes, which is a little revolving ball. It is. It's um, sweet. Yes, it's rather nice. Um, Zoltar tells Kara all about Earth, where uh, her cousin. Uh, what does she call? Does she, does she call him by name? Well, I'm just trying to remember now. Like Clark, or no, what's his actual name? Jo- Joel, Joel, <laughs> Billy Joel, Carlel, uh, Carlel. Sorry, I can't remember. You can tell because it's. She the says same. cousin. A it's lot. easy to remember because it's the same as the airline. Right. Um, talking of names, isn't Zoltar from Battle of the Planets, or is that? Am I... It's a very common name. Is it? Oh, I okay, guess real. Is it a real name? Uh, I expect so. Um, the uh, the Omega Hedron has all sorts of powers, and um, it uh, brings a little uh, uh, maquette of a dragonfly to life. Hmm. Um, well, Zaltar shows off the great big egg that he's planning to travel to Venus in. Yep. You see, I'm already enjoying this because it feels... It's so silly, but it, I really get a feeling that this is what the comic books must be like. I, yeah. I'm not going to say I'm not an expert again, but I did have a few um, authentic Golden Age uh, uh, Superman comics uh, in a little paperback book form as a child, which I was with all those big characters like Brainiac and that sort of thing. So I'm aware what they should be like and which... The sort of thing we consistently don't get when he's brought to the screen. So um, I'm open for that kind of rubbish. Yes, I like this this sort of uh, space fantasy stuff. I think that that works rather nicely. I mean, it contrasts rather sharply with the rest of the movie, which goes (laughs) goes off the rails almost immediately. Um, But um, because there's a hole in the dome, uh, the Omega Hedron falls through it and it flies away. And uh, that's a shame, because that's where they get all their power from, and now everyone's going to be dead in three days. Oh! It appears to go through a tiny little rip in a sheet of polythene, so I think they could yeah. have looked after it a bit more carefully. But um, Zoltar's going to use the, his big egg, but instead Kara gets inside, because she feels guilty that it's her fault. Um, so she flies off, as Zaltar's going to be condemned to the Phantom Zone for fucking around too much. Yeah, they, they are so so judgmental, these Kryptonians, aren't they? Just like they were with Paul Marlon Brando in the first one. Yeah. I mean, they, you might think, for all his faults, leave him, he might be able to help them in the remaining three days. <laughs> Why? If that's all they've got left. Punish them after that if they get through it. But hmm. nope. Swift and merciless justice. So Kara flies through space in a uh, 
effects scene that's obviously supposed to mirror the uh, one at the beginning of Superman the movie, but looks a lot more like bed knobs and broomsticks. <laughs> well, yeah, that might be the first point or second point. I started thinking it all felt a bit Disney. It is very Disney. You're right. I don't know if it's deliberate or if it's just a function of the budget, but uh, I was getting a sort of Sunday afternoon C-list Disney live-action vibes from it. Well, the budget was $35 million, which for 1984 was quite substantial. Mm. Uh, It made less than half that. Oh, dear. Um... Uh, meanwhile, on Earth, uh, Faye Dunaway and Peter Cook are having a picnic. Yes. Uh, on a on a tiger skin rug, by a river. In America. In a, a, America, <laughs> probably near near a town that's never named. Um, and this is Selena, who, in only a a, a scant few lines of dialogue. Uh, uh, outlines her character which is that she is a witch and she just can't wait to take over the world with magic does she say the world of magic or the world with magic I mean she wants to with yeah yeah I mean quite on the nose isn't it yes and and Nigel is a warlock who has been teaching her we also find out later he's, he's he's a computing teacher at the local girls school yes I mean, we can discuss that when we get there, but to be honest, I'm not convinced there was any point in him being both of those characters in one. It doesn't seem to pay off in any way. No, neither element informs the other. It's simply so that you can have the same character in different places. Um, As the Omegahedron suddenly appears and streaks through the sky and lands in the hummus. I liked that. I actually laughed out loud. It's a very Disney gag, though, as you mentioned. Uh, and Sel- Selena immediately realizes that this is, re- immediately realizes that this is an incredibly powerful object, um, and so takes the car and drives off. Uh, yeah. As uh, with the radio one that mentions that Superman has flown off to another galaxy for a while, <laughs> presumably having got fed up with everyone's shit and people asking him to rescue their cats from trees or something it's just buy a fucking ladder <laughs> um, meanwhile in space uh, the big egg opens and Kara flies out and uh, bursts out through the surface of a lake already in her costume yeah again only a couple of weeks since I watched Superman the movie but um What's the what's the explanation for these costumes? There are they Kryptonian. Uh, well, Superman garb. spends um, years in the uh, the Fortress of Solitude learning about oh, everything. That's it. That's and then we cut back, and he's got the costume. So, oh well, yeah, we assume yeah. that he maybe he made it during that time. But here, no, she's just suddenly her Ar- Argonite clothes, you know, her, the um, the pastel shifts that everyone's wearing, have turned into the Supergirl outfit. Well, you know, efficient. There's another thing that they gl- they gloss over in Superman the movie, despite it being extremely long, that they cover here, which is how he ad- we never really see him adopt his Clark Kent identity. One minute he's that strapping teenage uh, Clark Kent, and then we cut to him 
in the character of nerdy Clark Kent, the Daily Planet, without seeing... I mean, I think there are, there are, there are dramatic reasons why they do it that way, aren't there? But um, we don't see how he chose that character or how he evolved it. Is it an acting choice on Superman's part? But here, we... Uh, we do actually see Kara develop her, her Earth persona. Yes. Before that, she... Um, She's amazed by the nature and her her strength and her surroundings, and she can make flowers bloom and flies around as though she might be on some wires in front of some stock footage, and then goes off and flies all over the world uh, as uh, her family dies of suffocation. <laughs> well, you know, they're very resilient because... Did I say this earlier? The, the people of um, Argo City... Don't seem seem to have got over the death of the other billions of Kryptonians very quickly. They seem very cheerful about it. This is what yeah. confused. They're putting when a, brain, they're putting a brave face on, but they only have a few days to live, and the amount of time Kara wastes in this film, <laughs> frankly, fucking about. I Earth mean, just... I, I should say at this point, when I watched the film for the to to make my notes, I thought, oh, this is okay, this is fine. It's not great, but it's fine. And the more I've thought about it, and particularly listening to the commentary today, I've become less and less positively disposed towards the film. And I now think that it's actually quite terrible. <laughs> Can I make a technical observation? Because um, I did quite like her first few, the first few scenes of her discovering her uh, anti-gravity powers. I know you say they're obvious wires. Of course, they're obvious wires because the movement is very balletic. It looks like she's on a. It looks like she's on a wire, even though you can't see the wire. You know. Yes, but, it doesn't. It doesn't look. It doesn't look believable. But it is different because we don't get those sorts of scenes with with Clark Kent. Um, no, they avoid almost, doing that. Almost from the beginning, he's on blue screen. So, for better or for worse, you know, it's and it's quite good blue screen, but. They they don't tr- yeah, and maybe it's because he's a big strapping man, and it would look a bit sillier if he's doing acrobatics. But um, I quite liked those few moments, even though. And then, as you say, once she's done her her workout routine, she's then on in front of blue screen for her lap of honor. Yeah, uh, Nigel sees her as uh, she flies off, and uh, she flies with with some horses. Because mm. this is a superhero film for girls. <laughs> this film is incredibly patronising. And in the commentary, Jeannot Schwark is incredibly patronising. Right, I see. Um, I was wondering how much he was to blame because of certain... Well, certain points I was going to make later on that don't exactly back up your suggestion it's aimed at girls, but we'll come on to that. Um... Selena arrives back at her home, which is an abandoned funfair. And <laughs> you see, I like, I like it. I like it. That's very, again, it's a very comic booky. But I really liked that um, they continually mentioned that actually they're really short of cash and they've had the water cut off. And her, she has her own sidekick, Bianca, played by Brenda Vaccaro. And you know they've got they've got car payments. They've got a mortgage to pay on the abandoned funfair and it looks as though she's been driven to becoming a supervillain through the cost of living crisis <laughs> I like that her that, that she was been driven to this by the most mundane 
reasons. That she's decided to become a supervillain, she got herself the lair, and unfortunately that's as much as her cash could get, and now she's got no money to pay for any schemes. She couldn't afford the whole volcano. No. But... uh... It reminds me of uh, Lupton in the Doctor Who story, Planet of the Spiders, who decides to throw in his lot with evil world-conquering spiders because he's bitter about being sacked from his sales job. <laughs> well, these, they, when you can humanise a villain, I really think that makes them so much more powerful when, they're, when the when, characters are well, strong and three-dimensional. Like. Yeah, when they've got, when they've got like a, a, a motivation that you can understand, hmm. as opposed to wanting you think, to... Yeah, I'd do that. Rather than like wanting to drain the Earth's oceans into the planet's core to blow up the Earth because of how great it will be. What, an, what a magnificent achievement that'll be. Um, Kara flies to uh, New Chicago, where her wrist starts flashing. Um, and she lands somewhere in Canada, uh, where there are some very sleazy bin men. Uh. Now, I, as, you, as you were saying... That there are there are bits that don't seem like they're aimed at girls. Yeah, this is a bit that really doesn't seem like it's aimed at a family audience, because um, it's a PG movie, and a bunch of men plan on uh, preying on this uh, young, rather naive woman. And uh, it's, I honestly don't remember seeing this in any previous version. I think it's been cut from daytime showings because it's well over the line. I can only assume, to give them some the benefit of the doubt, that they were trying to replicate scenes like um, the the sort of uh, things Superman comes up against, say in, um, is it the second one, with, with the, the aggressive uh, oh, in redneck, the diner. redneck in the diner? Yeah. So it's their equivalent of that. But of course, it's not the same when you turn it, twist it around and think, well, what sort of, what sort of problems might have a female equivalent to Superman come up against? Well, no, we don't want to see that. And it's all so half-hearted, where they try to make it funny. Um, it's really take not the edge funny. off it. One of them is Matt Frewer, <laughs> which is the oh, only... All right. uh, you can, I mean, I think a lot of this film was shot in Canada, where, um, where life is cheap. Selena has a cocktail party, um, where Nigel wants to know more about the Amiga Hedron, and is also already aware of Kara and how she might be an obstacle. Because mm-hmm. even though this is the longer version of the film, there's still obviously bits missing. <laughs> um, something dark starts to appear in the mirror as well through one of uh, Selena's spells. But uh, Nigel instead uh, starts chatting up Sandra Dickinson. Yes. Are you sure? This, was this really filmed in Canada? I'd have been assuming all the way through that it was filmed over here, the same as the others. Uh, well, the location work, I imagine, was in Canada. Right. Um, or some of it anyway, but uh, yes, it was shot at Pinewood Studios in the spring and summer of 1983. Uh, before I forget, he's called Nigel. So if we were wondering whether this character's written to be British, I think that's the giveaway, because the Americans are obsessed with the idea that we're all called Nigel. And I think Peter Cook was trying to break through in America at the time as well. Hmm. Um, just as um, Dudley Moore's brief brush with fame was fading. <laughs> Um, but uh, Selena puts a spell on uh, Sandra Dickinson and throws both of them out. Kara uh, wakes up from where she's been sleeping with some little bunny rabbits, which is okay. uh, very sweet and everything, if you're a child. Yep. 
girls um, and, and girl children like bunny rabbits, don't they? Yeah, girl, ch- girl children, yeah. Um, yeah, nice, soft, fluffy things. Not not hard things like... <laughs> like um, that weird box that uh, Selena puts the Amiga Hedron in so she can roll it around. Um, and she hears a softball game happening nearby... And it's it's girls from the local school in uniform, and there's also a handsome gardener. So she transforms into an exact replica of their school uniform, changing her hair in the process, and uh, goes straight into enrol in the school, because she knows about that. I was thinking to myself, why she changed her hair colour? Oh, I see, that's her equivalent of Clark Kent's glasses. That's a disguise. But um, nobody knows her before, no. so there's not really any point. Unless she's thinking ahead the fact that she will have to reveal herself as Supergirl, I don't know. Do you think that's what it is? Okay. I'll, I'll let that one go. Um, she takes the name Linda Lee from uh, something to do with Robert E. Lee on the wall or something or other. And uh, Nigel teaches there as well. And he complains that um, he's been the victim of another practical joke because the drawers on his desk have been nailed shut. Yes, and this, com- this sort of treatment of his character completely ruins his credibility as a villain, which up till now have been first rate. I mean, you've got three villains here, but they are trying to riff on that whole... um, It's the same setup as as in the first one, where you have Lex Luthor, uh, Ned Beatty as Otis, and Valerie Perrine as uh, Miss Tessmacher, and now you have... um, Oh my god, so uh, Peter Cook is is the... Peter Cook is... The bimbo. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Pretty much, but the, but Valerie Perrine's character towards the end, she uh, she doesn't like the idea of Superman dying, so she helps him get the mm-hmm. um, the chain with uh, Krypton in out off his neck, uh, and uh, gets a kiss from him in return. And I thought, well, yes, that's nice. And then she turns evil again in the second one. Yes, possibly something to do with two directors, but who knows? Maybe. But uh, I don't know. Given that I think Ned Beatty had been twice Oscar nominated. At the time he did Superman the movie, it is quite fun to see him playing a full-on comedy relief idiot. Mm. Someone who managed to steal the film Network from its amazing cast of great actors with just one scene is now playing a comedy idiot. (laughs) Um, So uh, Linda Lee is shown into the room of Lucy Lane. Yes. uh, Because uh, I think the the, the L key is stuck on someone's typewriter. Well, so it seems. I mean, it's only just re- I've only just remembered that, of course, there's also Lana Lang in the third Superman film, isn't there? So that's three female... Well, at Lois Lane, of course. Yeah. So four. Oh, I see, yes, of course, yeah. Well, that's because, just because, silly. Because Lucy is Lois's younger sister. Yes. Uh, well, the, well, a lot of the... the um, superheroes obviously have alliterative names. I mean, Clark Kent... Obvious one. Um, Bruce Wayne is pretty much the only one whose uh, name doesn't alliterate. I think him and Tony Stark. Stephen Strange, Peter Parker, Bruce Banner. Mm. Um, uh, and all the rest. Uh, yes. Are these comic book characters? Or original for the movie? People like, I believe um, these are comic book characters. Yeah. Because, also, of course, over the decades they had plenty of time to... Expand and pad it, pad the stories out with people's families, didn't they? But um, 
Lucy has something of a long-distance relationship with the one actor, or the one character, <laughs> we get from any of the other Superman films, which is uh, boy reporter Jimmy Olsen. Now, people talk about it as if it was he was the only actor that could be bothered to turn up, like they asked all the others, but it's possible that he was the only character that they thought would fit. Like, Is he there just to give one of the girls a boyfriend, to appeal to these this imaginary young female audience? Is that yeah. what he's doing here? Well, they tried Christopher Reeve, and that didn't work out. Um, and given that the Salkines had alienated almost everyone who worked on the first Superman film with their uh, terrible behaviour, um, Gene Hackman wasn't going to do it. There's mention on the commentary of whether or not Margot Kidder was asked, but given that she was persona non grata, that's unlikely. Mark McClure is pretty much the only one left. They weren't going to draft in Jackie Coogan, I don't think. Right. No. Um, they go into uh, uh, Nigel's uh, computing class. Oh, uh, Lucy also offers uh, uh, Linda uh, the pick of her clothes, as they've only just met. Mm. I mean, th- th- this film is just burning up plot elements. I mean, there's, it's absolutely racing through them. And yet it's over two hours long. Uh, Selena plans to cast a spell to make people love her, whilst um, Bianca's been ogling Ethan the gardener. Kara senses that uh, the Omega Hedron's been flashing, and Selena uses it to uh, try and seduce him. And she makes herself known in class by solving a complicated mathematical problem in her head and embarrassing Nigel. So immediately the uh, school bullies start targeting her in another subplot that goes nowhere and just fills in time. It's very slightly odd, because to cut a long story short, when she solves the equation, the entire class laughs so hard and loud and unrealistically that um, you think nobody's going to be on her side. And then over the course of the next couple of scenes in which this plot plays out, it's revealed there are only really two bullies, and when they finally get their comeuppance, everybody else is pleased to see it. So... um, Slightly slightly unsatisfactory mm. delineation of this struggle she goes through. They they play hockey, um, uh, field hockey, out during uh, games, but um, disappointed to see a lot of illegal play there, a lot of illegal lifting of the ball and holding the end of the stick above shoulder height. Oh, really? You spotted all that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, that, that must have spoiled it, ruined it for you. I, I'm so glad I don't know the rules as intricately as you do. Well, you know, an ex-player like myself, it becomes second nature. <laughs> you think I'm joking. Um, so the uh, the bullies try and fix the heating to try and scald Kara, but uh, with her with her laser eyes, she sees through the wall, fires a laser through the wall, mm-hmm. and um, heats up the spanner. Haven't we already seen that gag? Because she heated up, she het up the uh, knife that the... Uh... One of the rapists pulled on her, didn't she? Yeah. But we get it again. You've glossed over the rather slightly unnecessarily lingering shots of all these schoolgirls in the shower, which seems, I thought, I don't I, I like to give them the benefit of that, but I, really, I, I did start to get slightly icky feeling about the director in, at, the, at these points. Mm. I didn't think there was any need for quite so much of that. I mean, it's all then, done tastefully enough, but well, uh, um, you, obviously it has to be. But it's, it's, this isn't one a, wonders this whether isn't a Paul Verhoeven film. No, it's uh, yeah. But I mean, there's a we do later on see uh, her roommate 
in a bra for no particular reason. So just when I was thinking, well, maybe maybe there wasn't just, anything just so that can, about that. Well, it's so that we can have a scene of of Kara uh, trying on a bra, and uh, and and, stu- that... and stuffing a bra, yeah, over, putting it on over her clothes. In that wacky alien fashion. Yeah, and she goes and gets her hair done as her family freeze to death. Um, and Jimmy's coming to visit for the weekend. Um, Kara goes to fly around again a bit and um, look for the Omega Hadron, and she goes past a drive-in that's showing Psycho 2. Oh, I didn't notice that. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, very, uh, very contemporary there. Um, Selena cast a spell to make a love potion, which involves uh, trapping a spider inside a walnut. Uh, and I like that Bianca arrives in the back of the scene on one of the little cars from the ghost train, as though that's just the way that you get into the get into the room. Um, Ethan's been hired to do some work there, and he he arrives at the door and asks for Mrs. Selena, um, which I thought was a nice undermining of her position <laughs> that you know, people can't even get her name right. <laughs> um, she puts the potion into his beer uh, and blacks out and, w- and th- at which point the doorbell goes again and Selina who plans to conquer the world with magic starts complaining about all oh, these bloody Jehovah's Witnesses <laughs> you see I, w- I wasn't entirely sure where they got the tone for for this, for this stuff because it's it's different from the bickering villains of Superman isn't it it's different from Lex Luthor, they're all. It's like they know that they're in a a B grade knockoff yeah. of the real thing. They're all acting like that, and I'm not quite sure what what in particular I'm thinking of. But I was also getting the Disney feel for a lot of these scenes. I kept thinking of Pete's Dragon for some reason, which I haven't seen for forty years, and so maybe that's completely wrong. But that sort of thing, the the seventies and eighties style live action Disney stuff. Well, I've the film felt was... a lot of this sort of humour in. The film was written by David O'Dell, who was a graduate of The Muppet Show and um, had worked with Jim Henson on The Muppet Movie and The Dark Crystal. And I think on the strength of the latter, he was chosen to be working on this. But I think having the villain complain about these bloody Jehovah's Witnesses coming and bothering her (laughs) at her lair, that's quite a Muppet Show gag. Yeah, I think that's sort of continually undercutting her status, making her quite an ordinary person with these, in context, completely ridiculous ambitions, and then suddenly something falls into her lap that will allow her to achieve them. That's an interesting idea. Well, yeah, I mean it's it's not dissimilar to Superman three, where we have no not a proper villain but Richard Pryor. We do have a proper villain. His... We have Robert. Oh Moore. well. Oh okay. That's but, why I should have but, made the time to watch that again. Robert, Robert Vaughn's a proper villain in Superman 3, but Richard Pryor is... Uh, he's someone who wants sort of wealth and power, but he doesn't actually want to hurt anybody or kill anybody. He just wants to steal. Hmm. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't dislike the idea of controlling the world. He just doesn't want to kill anyone in the process. Do we, I mean, is there any evidence that Celia, Selena does want to kill People? She doesn't uh, seem overly concerned about killing people. Um, but at the door, it's Nigel in his leisure suit, which looks like um, a, a, something you'd wear while you're parachuting, but covered in zips. <laughs> um, it does look like an, an item of fetish wear. 
but he he says, "Oh yes, this is a leisure suit. I've I've got a long weekend f- away from school." <laughs> so he's just been walking around wearing that. I mean, no wonder his pupils don't respect him. Why? It's like um, Liz Truss and her necklace all over again. Um, Ethan wakes up and starts bumbling around. Um, and uh, manages to get away uh, and starts wandering out into the street. And rather than chase after him, Selina just watches his image in a mirror. Um, and she casts another spell uh, as she gets the, the Morticia lighting, the little shaft of light across her eyes. Um, I, when was the last time you saw the Adams Family films? A while, a while ago. Because every single close-up of... Uh, Angelica Houston in both the films she is always lit partly in shadow but with a shaft of light across her eyes no matter where she is no matter what's <laughs> happening in the scene she is always lit that way how many films have funny lighting <laughs> but um, here they well, don't have the wherewithal to do it, do it yeah. consistently do they meanwhile Jimmy's taking everyone to uh, Popeye's Chicken um to the delight of uh, Elliot Kalen, um, whilst presumably Kara's family are starving to death. <laughs> yep. Which uh, seems a bit much. So some that... sort of, wouldn't some sort of amnesia subplot have solved all this? If you want to have the peril for the audience that there's a, ti- a, a time limit, but you don't want to make your main character look like an idiot, or a, or a heartless idiot, Just then that, lo- could have, that would have explained... Yeah, why she she takes this long way round? <laughs> you could ha- you could have a longer time limit. You could have like a month. Well, yeah, that that would. I thought of that, and then I thought, well, that takes away the urgency, doesn't it? It's um, we could debate the screenwriting pros well, and cons of each approach. I mean, you could say that uh, you know, the Argo people in Argo City can get enough sun, can get enough light from their sun to stop themselves from dying of cold, but to properly power their city, they need the Omegahedron. I'm going with amnesia. I think it would have been more fun if she'd woken up and not known who she was and then had to fit in not so much as a disguise disguise while she's on her extended vacation on Earth, but because she literally has no idea who she is, so she might as well try being one of these strange Earth people. It's too late now. It's 40 years too late. I think the problem there, though, is perhaps that um, if you have her wandering around trying to find out who she is, the audience already knows. And if the audience is that far ahead of the main character for that length of time, I think it's going to make the characters look daft. Uh, she wouldn't look daft if she literally didn't know who she was. She looks. She already looks daft for taking her time when she's got. A, she's on a three-day schedule. But if the audience knows that she's Supergirl, and she's spending half the film not knowing that and not doing anything. That's- if you did it well, it would, could ramp up the tension. Please, Supergirl, remember who you are. You've only got three days. Anyway, I can, see I'm not, I can see I'm not going to win you round. Well, she, it would come back to her when Zalt- she first sees something like the ball or something that... You know what? Zaltar should have gone with her. And they could have been separated. And Zaltar's running around trying to find her and find the, the, the Omega Hedron. And then they get together and that brings back her memory. And then they both end up being banished into the Phantom Zone. And then, good then it plays out as normal. Good idea, but that was a subplot, and then and it, then it would have been three hours long. So uh, be careful what you wish for. 
Well, maybe if we cut out all the bra trying on and chicken restaurants, <laughs> you know, it, it could bring the running time down a bit. Know your audience. There's nothing young girls like to see more in films than other girls in the shower and trying on their bras. And going to chicken restaurants. Yep. Um, so while uh, Ethan's wandering around and the police think she, he's on drugs, uh, Selena casts a spell that brings all the trucks alive in the street. And this sequence with all the trucks and all, the, all of this going, it's chaos in the town... This took a month to film. Right. There's your budget. Yeah. It looks... I didn't think it was quite bad. I thought it was at least as good as the... Um, it reminded me a lot of the set piece in Superman 2, where Zod first appears in that small hick town in America and starts throwing his weight around. Yeah. Not least because both of them look like <laughs> a small corner of a typical American town filmed on the back lot at, at Pinewood, of course. Yeah. Um, Ethan gets uh, scooped up by a JCB... Uh, Lana tries to help, but she gets knocked out. Um, I've written petrol station, big tyre, petrol. Yeah. And then (laughs) Cara turns into Linda Lee and says, I'll do that. I wrote this quite a while ago. Yeah, no, I mean, the way it's edited isn't much less confusing than what you've written. There is a big tyre. I forget why. I mean, there's lots of things going on, and it's not all as exciting as it could be. The edit... I mean... The direction is quite flat, I thought, throughout. The camera work. There's very little attempt to make anything look very exciting. And then the editing, you could have brought it alive with editing, and they don't really manage that either. So it falls down on both fronts. Hmm. Um, So Kara suddenly just turns back into Supergirl again and cuts through the power lines so that people won't be electrocuted and then flies straight through the big water tank, uh, flooding the entire street and killing God knows how many people. No, no, no. It was um, just a it, small. She puts out a small pile of tires that were on fire, which could have escalated if left unchecked for a few more days. Um, uh, she also snaps the bucket off the JCB and flies away uh, with Ethan, uh, who eventually opens her, her his eyes. And because she is the first person he's seen since he woke up, he immediately falls in love with her, mm-hmm. even though she's dressed as a schoolgirl. That old trick. It's all very fairy tale and very Disney. Um, yeah, because uh, Ethan starts reciting poetry at her. Yes, yeah, so uh, he sort of turned a bit British for some reason. Uh, he's actually uh, Hart Bochner's uh, quite a well-known American actor now, and uh, quite a successful director. Oh, good for him. Um, Selena thinks that Kara has been sent by Nigel and sends a monster to attack her. Sends an invisible monster, which smashes through a wall. Um, uh, interrupting Kara while she's gone back to her room to think about boys and kissing. <laughs> um, and there's actually some some very good effects as it crushes the wall and it crushes a car. Yeah. I, I mean, I, admittedly, I was thinking more about how they'd met, done these effects. I was thinking, oh, that's a good effect. I could just imagine <laughs> how much time the um, effects people have spent planning these practical things and rigging them up and setting them off. I shouldn't really be thinking about that while I'm watching. But I did enjoy the sequence. It's another nice set piece. It's got a different tone. Oh, we haven't really seen a sort of horror-tinged scene in Superman thus far, have we? So, you know, it always pulls it off in a Disney-ish kind of way. Um, Kara fights it and manages to channel a a lightning bolt into a lamppost and discharges it onto the creature and sends it away. Do you think it's only invisible because of budgetary reasons or because it fits in with the magical uh, angle they've gone for? Budget. (laughs) 
Thank you. I same don't... reason that same reason that when it finally appears at the end, it's shot in blurrow vision. I assume that was a different monster. Well, yeah, but uh, all mean, the that, monsters by, that appear by that point, Selena has a giant statue of the devil as well, which I thought was amusing. Just in case we thought that magic might not be evil all the time. <laughs> Um, Kara's bracelet goes off and uh, she follows the noise to the fun fair and uh, Ethan follows her with a box of chocolates because uh, he wants them to go on a date so they uh, sit in the waltzer while Selina attacks them and spins them round um, yes, that, that's and less successful. E- Ethan is attacked by dodgems <laughs> yep. um, Bianca starts making asides to the audience Um Selena's trapped in a cake. Uh, cave. Doesn't look like it. Doesn't look like a V. Cape. You'll be trapped in a cape. <laughs> How big would it be? Anyway, Ethan's. Ethan's it could be like that massive S that Superman takes off his shirt and throws it at somebody. Yeah. <laughs> that he takes off his jumper. Um. Uh, but. Uh, Kara rescues Ethan as, again. It's it's interesting that Ethan is very much constantly the damsel in distress. That he exists in the film only for the characters of the opposite sex for, for him to lust after. He is completely helpless unless the the hero of the story is rescuing him. Yeah, he, I like it. Yeah, it's a nice uh, change, and he's he's a hunky beefy guy. He seems nice. Um, Nobody's going to call this a feminist. Tome or a feminist oh, manifesto, God, no. but, but it is nice to see it to see something subverted without winking at the audience too much. They just do it and get on with it, yeah, turn things around, and it's quite refreshing. Um, but Kara picks up the dodger and flies it away, and they land on a beach, um, where Selena makes a coconut fall out of a tree and land on his head and knock him out. Um, I've got a note here. Everyone's powers. Everyone seems to have whatever powers that particular scene requires, with nothing ever defined. Probably why they went with magic then. If that's the sort of story they they knew they were going to write. Bianca persuades Selena to get hold of Nigel so that they can use his skill. But Nigel does actually draw the line at murder. Mm. Um, and he lets the spider out of uh, its walnut. So the um, the love potion is uh, lifted. Um, Ethan also comments on uh, Lara's... Uh, Lara. Lara is Superman's mother, as it's very complicated. Com- comments on Kara's uh, costume. And she says, this isn't a costume, these are my clothes. <laughs> those, are, those are not clothes. Um, but it turns out that Ethan really is in love with her. Um... Their luck, which is you know, it's nice. What do you think of uh, that is <laughs> what do you think of Helen Keller as Supergirl? <laughs> that would have been a brave, bit, brave a choice, bit, yeah, a bit cruel. What do you think of Helen Slater as Supergirl? Well, I think I was expecting worse. Um, as with the film in general, I, I was expecting it just to be a bad film and not to be an interestingly bad film. I didn't think that there would be, it's not that they shot for something and failed to achieve it on every level. There are some, some things that they've aimed for and achieved and perhaps they shouldn't have done, but it's it's interesting. And and as for her performance, uh, 
I think she's likeable enough. I could imagine it being more vapid than this. Rather um, like with the casting of Superman, they initially looked at a star name, Brooke Shields, Demi Moore, but the Salkines decided that they'd try and repeat the success of casting Christopher Reeve by going for an unknown. Um, so they went for um, Helen Slater. I think this was one of her very first... It wasn't her first screen role, but it was her first film. Everything's there in her face. I like that about it. She's not phoning it in. She's having... <laughs> no, she's, it's a, it, she hits the right note with the character. It's very sincere. Kara is completely honest, completely down the line, completely guileless. And Slater plays that very well in a way that's not annoying, because it could easily be very annoying. And I think she's an excellent choice. And I think generally the performances are mostly very good. Most people seem to have the right measure of the material. I mean, Peter O'Toole is basically playing the public's perception of Peter O'Toole in a lot of his scenes. (laughs) Peter Cook, for, for all the claims that Peter Cook wasn't a good actor, he's actually perfectly fine. Yeah. Have you seen The Rise and Rise of Michael Rimmer? No, I haven't. That's an, it's another film that it deliberately capitalises on how awkward he is when he's playing a lead, because his character is so strangely um, withholding of their personality and so enigmatic that the awkwardness becomes wound into that, although it's because he's actually playing David Frost. Um, but here he just gets to be an angry and annoyed man and he's got a a good hook to hang the character on I think it works rather well I've actually got an idea of what they could have done more with it talk talk about that yeah they definitely could have done more once they'd known who they got I think but uh, well they never he never found a decent vehicle for himself in film I mean the rise and rise of Michael Rimmer is everyone else is funny He's not the funny one. He's the straight one. Hmm. It's an odd film. Um, well, so we've got the romance bit for for girls, and um, Ethan also guesses that Kara is actually Linda. Um, so uh, Selena zaps Ethan to her bedroom, uh, turns Nigel into a ragged old man covered in dandruff. Slightly random. And turns the amusement park into a giant mountain fortress. Yes. With a sta- with a statue of the devil in it. <laughs> and when Kara yeah. uh, when Kara arrives back there, uh, Selena banishes her to the Phantom Zone. Yes. Where did she get that power from? That's, I suppose it comes from the um, from... the Omega. Thingy. Yeah. I mean, it's again, but... it's whatever is required by that scene. <laughs> yeah, that's very convenient considering that's where she. Anyway needs to be in that point of her hero's journey where she has to go back, find her mentor and gear herself up for the final confrontation. Um, Selina kisses the enchanted Ethan as uh, as Kara spins away and she arrives in uh, what looks a lot like the um, what's it called? The Bog of Despair from the never-ending story, the one with the, ho- <laughs> the, one with the horse drowns. Yeah. Um, and she slops around there for a while. Um, Selina goes into town in a fancy car with outriders, and there are protesters on the street protesting against her. Yeah, that I thought I'd missed a bit of that. And they've point. got placards and everything. 
down with the strange woman who lives in the abandoned fun fair, or yeah. is this because of the mountain that suddenly appeared? Which they are you telling me they know it's hers because it's on the side of the fun fair? Right? I, well, I, she's I mean, I'd she's got that she's point. in a big car. And why has she now got her own stormtroopers wandering around the town, coshing people? Where do they come from? Well, because she wants to rule the world, and she's got an idiot idea got, of what that's like. She's got the magic. Why does she suddenly need Doctor Who Robo Men? Oh well, not even the scary Robo Men, but the film Robo Men. Yeah, with their jelly beans. Um, Kara arrives in a spooky cave and finds that inside Zaltar is drunk. He's uh, because he's Peter O'Toole. He's managed to distill his own alcohol out of nothing. They have they have a very half-hearted go at pretending that he's some hideous monster um, stalking her. Yeah, which I'm sure ever, nobody has ever fallen for. Um, but um, this car is determined to try and to try and do something to get back and to help. And she says, "I'll, I'll never give up. I'll die first. And Helen Slater says that with such sincerity. As as I've seen described about Peter Davison before, you believe every single word she says. Yep. And I thought it's, but it, that's that's Supergirl. That's the that's the one who'll never give in, who always fight the good fight. Yeah. The fresh faced blonde actors are the ones who can sell that best. I think you'll find. Mm. I'm I'm not you know not bad myself in that in that respect. Yeah, but I know, <laughs> having said that. I do know what the next role is that you're playing in your your acting <laughs> career, and I know for a fact that he is a horrible person. So he is. Oh dear, I don't want to digress too much, but the scenes. Um, for anyone who knows it, we were doing Act Two scenes six and seven last night, and I felt unclean afterwards. Of uh, we haven't said what it is yet, have we? No, it's it's <laughs> Les Liaisons Dangereuses. Yeah, and, he, and he's playing the um, he's playing John Malkovich. Hmm. Yeah, and winning. <laughs> Many have said so. Um, it turns out that there's there's no way out of the Phantom Zone apart from the the way out of the Phantom Zone, um, <laughs> and um, there's no way they can make it there because it's impossible. Except that it isn't. Um, so yeah, I did drift. I did drift in and out at that point, um, but that that's all I missed, was it? <laughs> yeah, but we can't possibly escape unless we actually do it, and there's no way we can we can get out of here except for the way that we can leave. Yeah, the big red whirlwind. Uh, oh, is that no? And Zoltar is is motivated by Kara's uh, get up and go, and so they head off to the quantum vortex. Although, as as they climb out, Kara does say, "I'm scared," and needs to have a man to support her. Yeah. Well, he has to redeem himself somehow, so they have to put him in some fake perils so that he can nobly sacrifice uh, himself by giving her a little shove to get her out of danger. Yeah. As I said, a bit half-hearted. Like uh, the, all the beats of the plot are there, but they, um, a lot of them are a bit first draft. But uh, Selena and um, Bianca are watching this on their magic mirror, and I did like that Ethan is also watching and eating popcorn. <laughs> uh, and also, Selena started wearing reading glasses, which I thought again was a nice undercutting of her self-image as a supervillain. Uh, yeah, she's got to wear reading glasses there because bit long-sighted um they uh they reach the the gap that they have to climb through and selena tries to send a demon to to mangle them um but zoltar says oh don't worry i will be with you and uh, then just jumps off into the vortex and vanishes 
Yeah. And that's, because that's, that's, that's the end of him. That's what his character would do at this point in that sort of story. Mm. Uh, Kara manages to get away and she flies off and flies through the mirror and uh, um, now she's... Oh, she's livid. Um, Selina threatens the captives with red-hot spikes and freezing them and shattering them. And Bianca starts to think that maybe this is not a very good idea after all and she actually doesn't really want to rule the world through being evil. Um... At which point Kara rounds on Selina and says, oh, you have no friends left now. You treat everyone as if they were put on earth to serve you. Which um, reminds me of my landlady. <laughs> who, um, I, I've mentioned this on the Cinema Limbo Twitter feed, but since before I started the podcast, until relatively recently, I've lived in one place in London, and my landlady was the worst person in the world. Uh, an absolutely terrible human being. Imagine Selena, but without the magic powers or charisma. Yeah. But but also very racist. Right. Goodness. Yeah. Um, there's a giant demon, and it grabs Kara and starts stretching her. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much they spent on that effect, but I think it would have been worth. I think I think it taking have been the hit some to, more. to cut it. <laughs> Quit while you're ahead. I mean, they could have just had, they could have just had it. Um, squashing her in her hand and her going ah, ah and acting as though it's crushing her rather than like well it's sort of grabbing her like and trying to squash her back and forth like a, like an accordion because they film all of this through a sheen of vaseline taking their cue from doctor who's famous web planet i wasn't quite sure what you know mixture of effects they were using but i thought there was some hint of a, a shot with a giant hand and a real size helen slater in, in which case they could have i'd have done the stretchy scene with that, but and also later a a puppet demon with a with a with a puppet Helen Slater in its hand for a different scale effect. You see, you can't quite tell. They get away with it in inverted commas to the extent they do because they completely bodged it. Mm. I mean, but uh, Selena is able to su- summon a whirlwind. No, hang on a minute. What's going on? Kara uh, creates a whirlwind and. It, yeah. it's, it sucks in Selena and the demon and even scoops up Bianca and it goes off into the broken mirror and it whirls them all away and the mirror re- reforms and the image in the mirror is of Kara striking a heroic hands-on-hips pose. And that's the moment that it wants the audience to jump out of its chair and cheer. And I went, yeah. It's quite. I thought, yeah. well, that's, quite, like, that's, yeah. that's quite nice. I've never seen that before, I thought. With her, with her cape flapping in the breeze, and it's very sort of. Da, da, da. So, what's actually happened to these two horrible villains and their demon? Are oh. they dead? Are they going to spend eternity with the with the demon? Phantom Zone. Quantum, oh, I guess. Quantum Vortex. That's their answer to everything, isn't it? Oh and well. A, but we should have had a comment. I feel like that it would have been keeping with the tone of this film if we'd had a later scene, like in the credits, of them being comedy, having you know a slightly unpleasant time in the Quantum Zone. Well, I mean, the, remember that Santa Claus no, the movie that. ends with uh, John Lithgow having overdosed on magic candy canes floating off into space. Hmm. Um, also, weren't Phantom Zone and Quantum Vortex the names of the uh, rival teams in the last series of The Apprentice? <laughs> Take your word for that. Um, Ethan hands back the, Amo- the Amiga Hedron um, and promises to keep her secret. 
mm-hmm. uh, Jimmy and uh, Lucy kiss. Kara says goodbye to Ethan. And nobody uh, ever asks. Sorry. Yes. No one nobody ever asks. Ever, nobody ever asks her if she's if she could or would wants to come back again. There's an assumption that she's off and she won't come back to Earth again, isn't it? Well, I think at this moment, where there's the the tender goodbye and the kiss goodbye, Mm. what we really needed was a cutaway to Peter Cook sticking his fingers down his throat (laughs) and uh, complaining about all this lovey-dovey stuff. Um, The mountain vanishes. As Ethan says, wow, that was some kiss. And Kara dives back into the sea and comes out at uh, Argo City, uh, where the lights suddenly come back on. And then the film abruptly ends. <laughs> <laughs> yep, no time for epilogues. Get in, no. get out, job done. Hmm. As I say, the the film was released in a, a surprisingly heavily cut version um, in the US with uh, a number of chunks missing. The, the ballet, the flying ballet scene... Um, Help the helping the flowers grow. Almost all of Selena's introduction is gone. Um, Was it just for timing? An assumption that Americans wouldn't sit through. I think so. Two hours of this. Just it was just to get it down to an hour and three quarters. All the whole party sequence is gone. Um, There was um, uh, supposed to be a scene at the end where Nigel reunites with Sandra Dickinson and finds the. The box that the um, Omega Hydra had been kept in, which had, having grown bigger and bigger, had now returned to normal size, and he just pops it in his pocket as a memento. Very good. Yep, I'd have kept that. Um, I, I had an I, idea that if they did a second film, they could have based it around the school and had Peter Cook as a kind of Professor Snape figure. <laughs> that he's he's almost the um, the mentor who doesn't actually like the person he's supposed to be teaching. He could be um, let into the secret that Linda is actually Supergirl. And even though he's he's sort of on the right on the side of right and good, he doesn't actually like it. He quite likes the idea of power and all of that. He just draws the line at murder. And I think there would have been a, a, a fun tension there between her goodness and uh, optimism and him being Peter Cook. Yeah, I like that. Uh, however, the film was a massive disaster, so that was that. And um, the Salkines sold the Superman rights to Golan Globus, head Superman 4. Right. Is that two years later? Three. Three, right. Superman 4 I've previously covered on the podcast, and that is a whole other shit show. <laughs> I've not seen it. Is it... Can you sum up in a, you know, pithily... What kind of shit it is compared to this? Which which flavour of shit would you rather consume if you had? Oh, mint no chocolate choice? chip. <laughs> uh, um, it's it's better than Supergirl. I think a, a big problem is that if they had, if Golan Globus had made Superman fall the way they had promised they were going to make it, with the um, roughly the same budget as Supergirl, and not cut a third of the film after they finish shooting it probably would have been fine um but they cut the budget in half about a month before filming was due to start and then they cut the finished film down to under 90 minutes and as a result it really suffers 
But um, is the full-length version available? No. I feel like I've ever heard of it. But there are a lot of deleted scenes on the uh, DVD and Blu-ray releases. Right. So you, I mean, presumably someone's cobbled together a version of that, and some of the um, deleted material is clearly sort of work print level, with lots mm. of unfinished effects and unmixed sound. But it's enough to sort of get an idea of what the film is supposed to look like. There's a whole other nuclear. There's a, there was a different nuclear man. It's not just the one who's all blonde-haired and angry. Uh, initially, there's one who looks like a comedy Frankenstein monster, and is played by Clive Mantle. <laughs> and all of that was cut. But Supergirl, I found to be fairly patronising overall. It definitely feels like a, a comic book film for her. Yeah. I mean, to play devil's advocate for a minute, I feel like more of that comes from it, her being young and it being about a child in the company of other children than it is because she's female. It's rather unfortunate that she has to be both. It's um, it's kind of like the first female Doctor Who is characterised as somebody who's a bit wet and ineffectual. And wouldn't it be better if you'd um, not come up with that, paired that characterisation with your first big casting change? Yeah. Because then you're not quite sure. It leads some people to not be sure what it is they're objecting, they're disliking about it. I can say I haven't convinced you, but it's a it's a thought. Well, I mean, I, I, I say I enjoyed the the first Wonder Woman film, um, which is a similar fish out of water story. Um, and Captain Marvel goes in another direction by being a buddy comedy with Brie Larson and Samuel L. Jackson. Mm-hmm. Both were very successful critically and commercially. So there are ways of doing this that work. There are now plans for a new Supergirl film as part of. DC's latest do-over. Is hang on, let me just yes, I was going to mention this. Is Supergirl making an appearance in the Flash? Yes, she mm. makes an appearance in the trailer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's Supergirl. It's not an alternative universe Superman. It's I mean, it's an alternative universe Supergirl going through the plot that we saw Superman go through. Uh, is there going to be a Supergirl film as well as that, or has that, has that been scrapped now? Now that James Gunn has taken over and put his own plans in motion. I believe I believe there are some distant plans for a Supergirl okay. based project. Right. But he's going to do his new Superman first, isn't he? Yes, that's due for release in 2 years. Um and about which we currently know nothing. Except that it's not Henry Cavill. Except that it's not Henry Cavill because he was cast as Superman 10 years ago. <laughs> Still looking good, mate. But uh, ten years older. Yeah, I think I think Supergirl has does have some strong elements. I think it's well cast. I mean, even getting Mia Farrow in for a little cameo doesn't hurt, and the the main mm-hmm. cast are generally fairly strong. Um, the effects are, are good. I, I really like the music score. Um, that's that's excellent. Yeah, but... I didn't think the effects looked any worse than your average um, mid range eighties blockbuster. No, I mean, this, fair. this is a proper studio-level budget, and all the technical credits look good. Um, I, have, I have no dispute with that at all. But it, it just needs tighter writing and a bit more work on the, the things that matter. 
Um, <laughs> and I, it, it's hard. It, it feels like it's hard to actually pinpoint that's the thing that's wrong. It's it's just the patronising tone that that really jumps out at me. Because the villain does have a motivation, even if it's skated over quite quickly. She does have Do a we... pl- she does have a plan, even though it's relatively straightforward. Do we know why they went with magic witchcraft? Is that something from Sue? Because it's not the first thing I think of when I think of Superman. Is it justified from the comics, or was well, that a filmmaking decision? Isn't Mister Mix's Pitalik some sort of goblin or pixie? I have no idea what and you just said. Mister Mixius Pitalik. The the idea is that he has an unpronounceable name, and that um, you can only banish him by selling by saying his name or spelling it or something. So there is um, precedent for magic in the DC universe, just mm. as there is with Doctor Strange in the Marvel films. Um, and Supergirl needs a female villain to go up against. You couldn't put her up against a man, so then you go to witches, I suppose. Well, exactly. I mean, what what more obvious symbol is there of female power? <laughs> that wasn't even a joke. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I know exactly what you mean. I mean, you could have put her up against, say, Gene Hackman, if they found a big enough lorry to put all the money in. Um, <laughs> and that would have made an interesting dynamic. Um, or any other major serious actor of the time. Dudley Moore. Roger Moore. Mm. Roger Moore is a Superman villain. Now, now come on. Now, that's a million-dollar idea. Does Faye Dunaway have anything, anything to say about her approach to this film and how she regarded it with hindsight? I, I think this was pretty much her last major uh, film role. She seems to have tailed off in her career quite a bit after that. Um, she It was, I think, the fallout from Mommy Dearest, the uh, film adaptation of the life of Joan Crawford that came out shortly beforehand and um, was a noted critical and commercial disaster. And I think with Supergirl following... That was uh, pretty much game over for her as a major lead. Although she wasn't apparently first choice. First choice to play Selina was Dolly Parton. What the hell? <laughs> but apparently she was uh, reluctant to play a witch. Ah, uh, got a wholesome Dolly. Yes, of course. I mean, not something that she really needed to worry about, particularly given how comical the character is. And I, I do like that it's deliberately very grounded. That she's a witch with dreams of world domination, but is also struggling to pay her mortgage on the lair. I think the film could could have done with more of that. More of the the, the villain is just an ordinary person who suddenly has super villainy thrust upon them. Hmm. But um, overall, it's uh, it's better than Batman versus Superman. <laughs> the Superman ah. films do seem to be on a sliding scale of each one being successively worse, and um, I would I would rather watch this again than Superman Returns. I think. Ah, I think that's where it, that's where it falls in the spectrum between Superman Four and Superman Returns. I'm having a year of DC. Um, I don't know why. Well, it started with this. Actually, it's your fault. So I shall carry on through them, and uh, maybe I'll agree. But thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to go back and revisit the ones that I like and also add and <laughs> discover and, the and charms also... of this. I, I mean, as I said, it's interestingly flawed. And I'm, I'm surpri- kind of surprised it's not a camp cult classic. I'm surprised it hasn't got more fans because there's quite a lot of camp in it. I'm surprised people don't have watch-alongs and uh, where they 
dress up and do Faye Dunaway's lines in an over-the-top manner back to her. But uh, apparently not. Apparently it's just bad. It's just that film with 8% on Rotten Tomatoes. Well, I was pleased to note that um, uh, Helen Slater did make a comeback on the Supergirl TV series. So I gather. Um, in which she plays uh, Kara's foster mother uh, in a um, long-running story arc. Uh, having also played Lara, Superman's mother, in Smallville. Mm. So it's a very... Um, She's the Mark Hamill of... Well, not quite. <laughs> but uh, she can't get away. Yeah. Thanks to Paul for making time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Acast with over 110 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter at cinema underscore limbo and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, remember, without me, you'd still be reading tea leaves at Lake Tahoe. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com.